This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, in the post-pandemic era, the government still is perfecting its bioresponses. Plus, inside the Defense Department's latest run at modernizing its business systems. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Homeland Security Department interacts with more Americans each day than any other federal agency. DHS now has a department-wide initiative to improve the public's customer experience, including by establishing a new CX directorate at headquarters. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has more. And Justin, let's start with the story behind this new CX directorate. Yeah, this new directorate is being established this year. DHS is requesting $10 million in its fiscal 2024 budget to really scale it up uh, within the next couple of years. And it will lead the will lead DHS's CX activities uh, across a few different areas, design and experience operations, as they call it, policy, community engagement, plain language and language access and service delivery. So a few different flavors there of customer experience and how the department interacts with the public. And DHS Chief Information Officer Eric Heisen discussed this uh, new directorate during a Homeland Security Advisory Council meeting. Uh, This whole directorate stems from a recommendation from the council. Here's Heisen. We will this year establish a permanent customer experience office at DHS headquarters. We will be doing the same in each of our uh, agencies and offices, knowing that this work will look different in different parts of the department, but that it's uh, critical that every one of our agencies has this commitment. Yeah, well, every component has a different thing it needs to do for customer experience. And who has the lucky job of leading this new directorate? Yeah, DHS has brought on board Dana Chisnell to lead the CX office. She's a veteran of the U.S. Digital Service. Heisen called her one of the nation's leading experts on the design of civic systems. She's listed as acting executive director for customer experience at DHS. Uh, Her office is actually building out its sort of cadre of CX experts through a hiring initiative that DHS announced last September to hire uh, 100 CX experts over the coming year or so. Uh, Heisen says DHS, DHS has already hired 20 folks under that initiative, and these are folks who are senior product managers, human-centered designers, software engineers, data scientists, things like that. That uh, Those are the types of folks that DHS is looking to bring on board under Dana Chisnell and this new CX office. And which parts of DHS are actually focused of this new CX initiative. I imagine, I'm guessing, Transportation Security Administration, USCIS really needs it. Well, all of them. Which ones aren't, maybe? You're, you know, you're on target here. It's, there's four uh, DHS agencies that are the main focus. They are Customs and Border Protection, uh, TSA, as you mentioned, USCIS, as you mentioned, 
and then the Federal Emergency Management Agency. They're designated as high-impact service providers by the Office of Management and Budget due to the amount of individuals that they interact with uh, every day. Uh, you know, FEMA is requesting $1.2 million in its 2024 budget to establish a dedicated customer experience team. TSA is requesting a couple million dollars to build out its customer experience program. So these seeds are already, already starting to grow at these different components. And what do they have planned this year besides getting the office going and hiring people? Do they have anything they hope to accomplish? Hiring and staffing continues to be a major focus. Heisen says that they're looking to validate staffing models to ensure that their key frontline staffs at those different agencies are appropriately staffed. They have the number of people, that they have the right people. And where they have gaps, Heisen says uh, they'll they'll go to Congress and see if they can fill them. And he actually highlighted something Congress already did in the last uh, appropriations bill, bringing TSA pay in line with the rest of federal government. He says that's going to make a big difference toward improving TSA's ability to staff airports. So that's one example of something that's actually already happened. Yeah, just having enough people sometimes on the job is part of the problem, sure. And what changes to some of the big DHS programs? I'm thinking travel screening. That's probably touches, well, millions a day, actually. What are they planning there? Do we know yet? Yeah, I mean, travel screening is the big one. They're actually moving to streamline TSA PreCheck and CBP's global entry programs, respectively, somehow bringing them together a little bit and actually uh, streamlining them so they're not two separate things. Here's Heisen again talking about that. We have some work to do to think through what parts of the security experience from PreCheck and global entry can we offer to everyone. Uh, We've seen much of that occur already over the last several years. And then where are there opportunities to further differentiate and streamline the process for our trusted travelers? How can we do so in a way that eliminates the need for travelers to understand what's a TSA responsibility, what's a CBP responsibility? Just know I'm going through the airport. This is what I need to do so efficiently. Well, you know, one big connect disconnect, I should say, that they've had for a long time is that that trusted traveler programs has two bifurcated halves. If you simply want TSA pre-check, you go through TSA. But if you want the global entry, you have to go through CBP, which gets you trusted traveler through TSA. And I think that was kind of confusing to people early on, but that's a CBP program, yet it's manifest when you go through the checkpoints at TSA. That's kind yeah. of a portal issue, maybe. I think that's the issue that they're getting at here uh, is, is, you know, it doesn't make much sense when you have these two distinct programs and really everyone's after the same kind of experience. They don't really care uh, whether they're applying to CBP or TSA. They just want to get through the airport quickly. Right. And getting through the airport quickly means everyone has to be screened in some manner. And that's a big technological lift to update screening. When I visited in January, the TSA lab, the Transportation Security Lab, which is actually part of Science and Technology Directorate, they had lots of new technologies where you can walk through panels that are far apart and you're screened quickly. But there's a lot of technical barriers to installing these things at the scale and the reliability that you need actually at the airport. So sometimes a great idea can come from a company or from some European outfit, but it could take three, four years till it's industrial grade both in terms of the security itself and in terms of lasting more than 10 minutes at an airport. Sure. So these are 
scale problems in many cases. And you, of course, have to account for real-world scenarios and the fact that you're having to screen millions of people on a daily basis at a lot of these airports. Uh, you know, they're, they're testing out a number of those technologies at TSA. It'll be interesting to see what comes to bear under the customer experience banner. And I think that idea of just throughput does relate to people and paying people and incentivizing them to stick around. I mean, sometimes we've all seen the slower line is actually the trusted traveler line because so many people are signing up for those programs. And sometimes it seems like you've got a longer line there than just the great unwashed masses going through the old-fashioned screening. Yeah, I think when I went to the airport last, that was the case up at uh, BWI. They actually have wait times listed now to kind of help you out. I don't don't I don't know how accurate they are always. I saw some folks arguing about that, but you know, that happens. At least they're trying to communicate with folks a little bit. And ultimately in some long distant future, they envision where the screening takes place before you even get to the terminal. When you enter the airport in your vehicle, it's possible to maybe do screening then, and then everybody just waltzes onto the plane like the old days. Yeah, I think they're they're probably testing out a number of those ideas at uh, the TSA lab that you mentioned and, and thinking through some of those things. Facial recognition is another thing that TSA is really looking at heavily that's obviously a flashpoint, but I think they... Th- they, they believe that it can really help get people through the airport faster if they opt in. The challenge will be there's a lot of privacy and civil liberties concerns as well around that, of course. So that's something to watch going forward. Who knows? Maybe the day will come when we will be once again getting on planes without magnetometers. I actually remember those days. <laughs> it's our, guess what, kids? There was a time when you just walked on a plane without even a metal detector. Sure, with a full pack of cigarettes that you were smoking, right, too? And if you ran out, they'd give you a free one on board. Federal News Network's Justin Double. Thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, inside the Defense Department's latest run at modernizing its business systems. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The Pentagon's array of aging business IT systems has been on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list since some of its users were in grade school. Now the DOD CIO's office is determined to do something about that. The office was recently handed some new governance authorities over those systems. Lily Zalecki, the deputy DOD CIO for Information Enterprise, said she intends to use them. Zalecki spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu as part of our 2023 DOD Cloud Exchange. This is the first time that it's come to the CIO. That's a key point because I think we look at something like defense business systems, and we think process. If we just improve the process, then we'll be able to fix and manage. And I think there's been enough oversight for defense business systems. I don't think it's oversight. I think it's pinpointing what is really the mm. the key that's holding us back. And really, if you peel the onion back, and if you really look at over the years that you mentioned, I think we've focused on the process piece, but really, ultimately, you can't improve process with legacy capabilities. So the technology has to change. 
at the heart of it is really the the legacy systems and how we manage this technical debt and the technical piece of it and how we marry that up to you know improve our architecture improve our rationalization and see there are many capabilities that may be duplicating or how we manage to uh, run their life cycle and get us to the next level of capabilities so we can actually improve the process that these defense business systems are supposed to be supporting. The warfighter and the users should not have to worry about capabilities that are pulling us back. They should be able to do their mission at ease and and with flexibility and at speed. And really, with old systems, you cannot do that. So it really, the technology is at the heart of it, and I believe the fact that we are focused on, from a CIO standpoint, not just on the business process, but in coordination across the board with uh, you know, our performance improvement organizations, with the data, CDAO data officers, with uh, the functionals within the OSD organization, as well as the components that actually use these systems, I really believe we're finally making headway into really what's at the heart of what we need to address to manage defense business systems, which is really the statute you're talking about. Yeah. And and the functional communities that kind of own these systems, I I, I think they've recognized for a long time that technical debt is is a big problem for them. I mean, the financial management community certainly knows that this is a problem for getting a clean audit. The logistics community, I'm sure, knows that this is a problem for their logistics chains. So getting back to your role, is it primarily arguing and championing more resources, better coordination? What 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 can the DOD CIO's office do to, to help push this ball forward that again these folks have recognized as a problem so for a, a we long are, time? That's that's a really great question because I think when we talk oversight, it's sort of a nebulous like it's not just oversight. Actually, the DODCI was responsible for coordinating and enabling an enterprise architecture, for example, for uh, defense business business enterprise architecture. Working with all the functional communities and and the CIOs, the IT, so the technical and the business has have to marry up. And I think we're in a position where. Uh, to to ensure that that happens as we coordinate across uh, the department. We're also really the gatekeepers of the defense business uh, systems repository, which Mm. entails all of the information for the systems. So we really need to work on the data quality completion, uh, and that's one of the things that we will really be focusing on. But the biggest thing is, honestly, we are going to have to come up with good technical criteria well, we're already coming up with them to address how we rationalize these systems, not just from a business standpoint, but the technical. How does the technical integrate into that? And how do we make the tough decisions if we have to? Or how do we make the decision to move the systems to the cloud if they can move to the cloud, which some of them can? And also just being able to bring all the players together in a way that we're not only focused on the business piece, but also on the technical piece. So I think this is really a journey. I always talk about modernization is a journey. It's We're going to have to walk it with many across the department. It's going to require all of us. And uh, I can tell you it's not an easy journey. It's not going to be an easy journey. It's never easy. If we could have easily swept up the technical debt and 
moved, you know, done great things with uh, with defense business systems, we wouldn't be talking about them right now. So it is really a heavy lift that is going to require all of us in the department from data to business process to performance improvement to having really good metrics that is output driven, that is about the mission, that is about the users and the warfighter. What are we supporting? They got to eat. They got to get, you know, the things they need. They we they got to get paid. We have to do all these things. So the functions support the bigger mission, the operational missions. So we really have to get focused on what we really need to focus on. Just one last quick thing on business systems. The repository you mentioned, that's that's interesting to me. Is is sounds like part of this is just cataloging what's out there. Is that a relatively new development, just identifying where all that technical debt actually lives? To be honest, it has existed. So we have data repositories for all of our systems. Um, We just happen to manage and run the defense business piece. But data at large, getting the right data, clean data, um, being able to do the rationalization in a real way, being able to make the tough decisions depends on good data. I'm not saying I think sometimes we just got to go with what we have and make some decisions, but we try to really get better data in a way that we're able to make really good decisions. And that's really what I'm getting at. But another piece of it was really the enterprise data in a way what is the the functional data that these systems are handling? So that is the kind of thing that we'll be working on with the CDAO to make sure that we appropriately characterize the functional data in a way that, again, we go back to rationalization. When we talk legacy systems, we cannot just sweep up rationalizations. That's going to be the key part of it. The same with like when we talked about cloud rationalization because that's the only way we can optimize and we can uh, look at things from an enterprise standpoint. And and to your point, we're not going to sit here at an enterprise level and be uh, we're going to handle the entire enterprise from here. Our role is to set up criteria from an enterprise level that that then flows down to the functionals and to the components in a uniform way where we're going to be able to feed the same kind of information, which data comes into play and how you talked about characterizing and tagging the same, the right data. That's what our role is to set up the framework, to set up, to set them up for success. Uh, and with the structure that it needs and the governance, it needs to be honest. Lily Zalecki, the Deputy Defense Department CIO for Information Enterprise, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu on day one of our DOD cloud exchange. Still to come, this head of an obscure agency improves health care for millions. But first, in the post-pandemic era, the government is still perfecting its bioresponses. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Given everything that happened in the pandemic of 2020, you'd think the government would have learned a thing or two about bioresponse. It's learned a lot, actually, but there's still more work to do, says the Government Accountability Office. And for more, we turn to the GAO's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Chris Curry. Chris, could have you on. Thanks. And this latest report on bioresponse, is it more a review of how the government did in plans that date back to 2018? In some extent, there's plans that go back to the George W. Bush administration for bioresponse. Or are there new learnings and things that they can do, fresh recommendations? Tell us what's going on here. Well, what we wanted to do in this report is so much has happened leading up to COVID and, of course, during COVID. And so we wanted to issue something talking about our biodefense work over the last decade or so and some of the key challenges. And I think one of the big concerns we have is that there has not been really a comprehensive after action done post-COVID, which is understandable. I think everyone's kind of ready to move on from, from COVID and get on to the next thing. But there were huge problems before COVID. COVID then illustrated a lot of systemic weaknesses in our system for preparing and responding to these types of events. And then, you know, it's really important that we just try to follow up on these gaps and close them before the next pandemic happens. Because I know the GAO has an eight-step program, for want of a better word, on how you actually do lessons learned. Everybody talks about lessons learned, but you've got an eight-step process for that. Sounds like that's what you're prescribing for the government. Absolutely. The great thing about real events like this happening is you can learn lessons from them and prepare the next time. Unfortunately, it's really hard to do. We've seen this in past disasters where there's comprehensive after action review and reporting done, which requires a lot of time and resources. And often the gaps are not closed because, again, it's sort of human nature to move on to the next event, not close the prior gaps. So that's what we're really advocating needs to be done. In some ways, maybe a lesson learned is post 9-11, which was the other catastrophic event, you might say, of this century, barely into the century. And there were commissions and studies and books and so forth. But you could say the government changed a heck of a lot and the national way of thinking about terror attacks and mass destruction attacks did change. This was slow rolling and yet it killed a million people and not just a few thousand, not just, but you know what I'm saying that maybe that's a good model, 9-11 response for the COVID response, would you say? I think that's a good comparison. Very different events, but with 9-11, there was a lot of follow-through with the 9-11 Commission and 9-11 Commission Act, the legislation that reformed how the government prepares and does intelligence gathering and things like that. I mean, that's that's a good comparison because I think that's what's needed in this case. For example, Federal roles and responsibilities were a confusing part of the COVID response, especially up front. You know, who was responsible? Was it CDC? Was it HHS? Was it FEMA? Eventually, they developed over a number of months a a strategy and and a structure to best respond to it. But that took some time to figure out based on how COVID was actually playing out across the country. But if you look at today, you know, we haven't really gone back and reevaluated those roles and responsibilities and made any systemic changes to our system in response and to prepare for the next event. Do you think that one of the problems of the post facto era is that this took place, the pandemic, over two administrations that frankly hate each other's guts? And without asking you to take sides, I wouldn't do that. But could that be part of the, I don't know, paralysis here for stepping up to looking at this in a commission objective kind of way? 
you know, we're all aware of the very politically contentious discussions around certain things that happened during the pandemic, like mask wearing and lockdowns and things like that. I, I do think that complicates in the ability to look at this holistically and see how we need to change our planning for the future. But I will say that across administrations, for example, in 2018, the Trump administration had issued the National Biodefense Strategy. The Biden administration just recently in uh, October 2022 issued a new strategy and a new update. There's some differences between those, but in terms of how the federal agencies need to work together across the administration, the executive branch to prepare, there's a lot of similarities. For example, under the old strategy, HHS and working with DOD and DHS and USDA was supposed to be the lead in coordinating across those departments to figure out what resources were needed for biodefense, where efforts needed to be placed. You know, a lot of that is the same today. It's the same agencies that have to work together to prepare for these types of things. I think one of the challenges has been accountability, though. Anytime department agencies have to work together on something big like this, it's very hard for them to make each other do certain things or spend money in certain ways. And that's why leadership at a higher level is necessary, whether that comes from OMB or the White House. And the Biden administration reinstituted the pandemic planning office within the National Security Council. That's a good step to oversee some of these efforts. But in many ways, some of the challenges still exist, like, you know, how do we determine where resources are needed across such a huge enterprise? That's still a challenge that we face. We're speaking with Chris Curry, Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And I'm thinking it's probably likely that the people at the operational level, whether they're in FEMA or in some unit of CDC or HHS, they probably know one another. These communities tend to get small when you get down to the operational level and know exactly what has to be done. The sclerosis really is at the political and leadership level. Yeah, and I think it's important. It's true. They, at the agency level, everyone knows each other and they work together. And, and especially during COVID, they're very much aware of what processes need to be put in place and how this might play out again in another pandemic in the future. I think what's important is over time, the structure, resources, and authorities match that. So a, a good comparison I like to use is after Hurricane Katrina, when the federal response was not what we wanted it to be. So there was legislation, major changes in federal policy around how you respond and what authorities you have to respond to a disaster. And I think this is the same type of thing that's necessary now post-COVID is, you know, what lessons have we learned and then what changes do we need to policy to prepare for the next event so we can handle it the way we want to. And state and local government, state and municipal government, county government, that's got to be a big piece of any kind of response nationally. It's a huge piece and it's a huge peace and disaster response. And that is well ironed out at this point between the federal government, state and locals, how that response is going to work in a natural disaster, how resources are going to be shared, how funding is going to be provided from the federal government, well ironed out and tested through real events and through exercises. And I think this is no different. COVID is a disaster in and of itself. Another pandemic or a bio event is very similar. So, you know, for a long time, we've questioned why there is not a similar sort of structure and authority structure like there is in the disaster world in the pandemic or biological event planning world. I, I, and I think there should be. Because you don't want people thinking of it like those signs on highways. This is a, an emergency escape route. You see these faded signs on crowded highways and you realize even city streets, this is the escape route. 
in a real disaster, it would be absolutely jammed with traffic. You'd be sitting for six hours at the first traffic light. That's what you want to avoid. Yeah, and I think the hard part about pandemics and situations like this is, you know, they don't occur very frequently, or at least that's the perception. So, um, you know, my fear is that coming out of COVID, people see this as it's a, it's a once in every 100 year kind of event. We don't have to worry about this again. We can move on to other things. That type of thinking is concerning to me because another thing could pop up and it could happen again, you know, in a couple of years. So any new recommendations? And if so, who are they aimed at? So no new recommendations in this product that we just issued last week. It's really just a combination of all of our prior work and reiterating some of these things. I will say, you know, 21 of our 29 recommendations we've made in this biodefense space are still open. And part of that's because of how big and sweeping they were and how difficult they are to implement. So we still think those are critical to implement moving forward. And there's still a lot of work to do. So we'll be holding the agencies accountable for that over the next few years. Chris Curry is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Still to come, this head of an obscure agency improves health care for millions. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. He runs a program most people never heard of, but it's got a $5 billion budget. He's Associate Administrator for the Bureau of Primary Health Care, and that's nested in the Health Resources and Services Administration, itself a component of Health and Human Services. And now the senior executive is a Presidential Rank Award recipient. Jim McRae joins me now. Mr. McRae, good to have you with us. Great to be with you, Tom. And congratulations on that award. Let's talk about the Bureau of Primary Health Care. We can sort of imagine what it does, but why don't you tell us what it does and what the scope of it is? It's more extensive, I think, than people realize. Sure. Well, actually, we're close to $6 billion now. So we're an agency within the Health Resources and Services Administration within the Department of Health and Human Services. And our mission is to provide resources to underserved communities to help support the provision of primary health care in this country. Wow. And so there are a lot of places that lack primary health care, aren't there? Yes, we actually now have a total of about 1,400 community health centers across the country that operate close to 15,000 sites that provide affordable, accessible, basic health care services, including oral health, behavioral health, vision services to medically underserved populations. And today we serve about 30 million people all across the country. And is this delivered through private organizations, nonprofits? What are these 1,400 health centers like in that sense? These are all private, not-for-profit organizations. We have a few public entities, but 95% of these are community-based organizations. And what's unique about these organizations is that they are actually run by the patients themselves. So the governing boards of these organizations actually have to have at least 51% of the board be representative of the patients, um, actual patients of the center. And how do you ensure, and we'll get into the bigger picture here in a minute, but how do you ensure that if it is run by patients that the doctors and the dentists and the psychologists that they hire are the best and most competent they can be? 
So as part of receiving the federal grants from us, there are some expectations, including related to the clinical quality of care that's provided. All of these organizations must have a quality assurance program. The providers themselves must be licensed. They must meet both federal, state, and local requirements. But the other piece of it is that by having the organizations be run by patients of the center, it actually makes the care more responsive to what the actual needs are in the organization. And one of the things that happens quite a bit is the interaction between the provider staff and the governing boards talking about what are the needs of the patients, how best to respond to those, and really keep a pulse of what's happening in that community. Interesting. So I imagine if they wanted then, the citizen-run board or the patient-run board could say, well, you know what? Nine to five doesn't really work for medicine. What we need is something that opens at 3 p.m. and is there till midnight. And if the doctor is willing to do that, I mean, personally, I don't care where you live, that would be a much better situation. Well, and actually to that end, most of our health centers do offer at least one evening a week and many work on the weekends and actually are responsive. In fact, the board itself is the organization that sets the hours of the organization and they have communicated clearly to the staff and to the providers that we need to be open when people need access to care and that includes evenings and weekends. And if it costs, say, I'm just making this number up, a million dollars a year to operate one of these centers, one of the 15,000, what portion of the operating expenses does HRSA grants cover? So on average, we provide about 20% of the revenues of these organizations. And what the grant is intended to do is to cover the costs that are not covered by other insurance. A significant number of our patients are Medicaid recipients. A significant number are Medicare. We also have some private insurance organizations that serve private insurance people because we are in underserved communities. But the remainder of that is covered by the grant itself. And with that grant, there are expectations in terms of the quality of care that's provided, financial accountability. We conduct site visits to make sure that the care is of the highest quality and produces the outcomes that we all want to see. And tell us about yourself. What do you bring to this? Are you a physician by training, a federal program manager, a grant person? Who are you? Well, I am not a physician, but I have been in the federal government for now almost 33 years. I've actually served as the associate administrator for the Bureau of Primary Health Care for a little over 15 years. I worked in the program initially as a young sort of person out of college and really grew up with it and have had the real opportunity to be able to lead this organization for a number of years. And we have seen some significant growth in the program over time. And we're speaking with Jim McRae. He is head of the Bureau of Primary Health Care part of the Health Resources and Services Administration, also a recipient of the Presidential Rank Award. And let me ask you about that. Often we find that there's a specific thing that someone did that garnered this award. What would it have been in your case? Because the White House doesn't put out that information. (laughs) Well, I think part of this award is definitely for the longevity and having worked across multiple different administrations. And I think the thing that hopefully people have seen from my leadership, but most importantly from the program and these community-based organizations, is that investments are made in these organizations. We do produce results. And so I've had the opportunity to work initially under the Bush administration. They had a big initiative to actually double the number of health center sites in the country. We were able to successfully do that. Under the Obama administration, we actually supported big efforts around the Recovery Act, both making sure that people had health care, but also promoting economic development by establishing establishing new health center sites and facilities. We, of course, have supported the Affordable Care Act during the Obama administration to make sure that even if people have health insurance, to make sure 
especially in rural and frontier and inner cities, that people had access to care and they could get it and it was affordable and accessible. During the Trump administration, we really worked on uh, expanding the capacity of health centers to respond to the opioid crisis, expanding the capacity of our health centers to provide medication-assisted treatment. And then most recently in the Biden administration, we've been instrumental in responding to COVID and especially making sure that those communities that have been disproportionately impacted by COVID had access to vaccines, tests, masks, and therapeutics. And so really have had the opportunity over the last four administrations to work very closely with each of them to hopefully deliver results that make a huge impact for medically underserved communities across the country. And you've outlined how the organizations have had to bend and twist and accommodate different health phases, different crises that come along in public health. What about ensuring that the practitioners are up to date with the latest medical practices? Like there's so many little things. Like I've noticed the way dentists give lidocaine. They use different techniques than they used to. They just plunge the needle in there and push. I mean, little things and big things. And how do you ensure that people that are accessing these facilities get the same things people in upper Manhattan also get? Sure. So a couple of things, Tom, that we've done. One is that we have worked with an outside organization to have our health centers recognized as patient-centered medical homes, which is a national quality benchmark. When we started this initiative in 2010, we had less than 1% of our health centers recognized. Now we're close to 80% of our organizations have received this outside quality recognition. In addition, we have promoted and supported the training of new residents and students out of medical schools to have the experience working in a community-based setting. As you know, most of medical education today is done in hospitals, but one of the things that we see as critically important is getting residents in medical schools exposure to community-based settings, to serving underserved populations, and practicing in primary care settings. And as we've done that, it not only hopefully increases the capacity of those students to provide primary health care, but it also helps keep our practitioners on the cutting edge of services that are needed. Um, Really, that interaction between students and our providers is critical. And the good news is what we see is if students do have that exposure, they're more likely to go into primary health care, which is a huge need in this country, but they also are more likely to practice in underserved communities. Right. So part of the job then is almost selling them on the idea that you might be in rural Pennsylvania, rural South Dakota, rural somewhere, and it's not going to be like practicing on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. But it can be fulfilling. Absolutely, completely fulfilling. And, you know, you've probably seen the movies like Doc Hollywood, a lot of different activities about what it means in terms of people's personal lives. It's very fulfilling. I will say that the staff that work here in the Bureau of Primary Health Care and, of course, the staff out in our community health centers are so mission-driven and committed to making sure that people, again, have access to affordable, accessible, high-quality primary health care. And what you can see is that it makes a huge difference in their lives. I mean, we're delivering hundreds of thousands of babies every year in communities all across the country. We are helping people control their hypertension, their diabetes, and we're also preventing disease. And that opportunity to see real world what happens and the impact that it's making is really rewarding. And what has kept you in federal senior service all this time? I mean, you could probably triple your salary at one of these health delivering organizations themselves. Well, it's a great question. I would say it's the mission and the people. You know, one of the things that drew me to the Community Health Center program was to see that impact every day. And what has kept me here is that working at the federal level, you can either make it easier or sometimes harder on individuals trying to deliver federal services. And my commitment and my staff's commitment is always let's try to make it easier to deliver that care. 
and we've seen that it happens. And as you were talking a little bit earlier, we really work closely with our partners to be flexible in terms of how we approach different issues. And we're committed to working towards the same goals of providing that high-quality health care, eliminating health disparities in this country. And the way I describe it is to be tight on the what, what is it that we're trying to achieve, and looser on the how in terms of how we do it together. That could be the watchword for a lot of federal managers. Jim McRae is head of the Bureau of Primary Health Care in the Health Resources and Services Administration and the recipient of the Presidential Rank Award. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Enjoyed it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The Biden administration has emphasized better customer experience. The VA's National Cemetery Administration is already at the top of the charts. One scorecard found the NCA consistently ranks number one among all public and private organizations on the American Customer Satisfaction Index. For how they do it, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with VA's Undersecretary of Memorial Affairs, Matthew Quinn. To come out with the same score that we did, again, top score, private or public, uh, we were very pleased with. And I think it's a testament to the dedication to that mission, uh, not only out in our cemetery operations where You know, that is the last opportunity for this nation, for this agency, to thank that veteran for their service, to recognize that veteran service, or the sacrifice of the family so that that veteran could serve this nation. And so not only there, but also within our call center, which takes the calls, about a third of the calls are from family members, two-thirds of the calls are from funeral homes, which really is the first stop for the family the death of the loved one, even at our call center, they understand that this is our opportunity to recognize that veteran service or the family's sacrifice, either with the family or with the funeral home. And so it is that singular focus of ensuring that that is the one opportunity that we have. There really is no do-over in the case of that interment of the veteran or the loved one. And that memory is what will last with that family as the nation grieves the loss of another veteran. And so I, I think it all boils down to that singular focus. You know, we have a very high number of veterans within NCA. As I go out and visit with the employees, that's what I see is, hey, one day this is going to be me and my family. And so I know how that needs to be for them. And I'm going to make damn sure that the work we do today is exactly what will be done for me or my family when when my time comes. And so I think all of that rolls into a singular focus on the mission of recognizing that veteran with that final benefit the veteran will ever receive. And and it's that internment in a national shrine. The VA is obviously a very metrics-driven organization. What kind of feedback does NCA get from the individuals who call its contact center? And how has the agency refined this feedback loop over the past couple of years? We don't just rely on ACSI, obviously, once every three years. We do annual surveys of our customers out there, our stakeholders, 
that's the funeral homes, that's the families who are either interring or visiting loved ones at our cemetery. And so those go on consistently. The other thing we do is we do uh, inspections of our cemeteries to ensure that they are national shrines and world-class standards. But here's some of the things that, you know, we see and, and I recognize when I go out and, and I've interred a father and a brother and a number of uncles at one of our grant-funded cemeteries. Signage. When the loved one wants to come and visit the grave or extended family wants to come visit the grave, signage at our cemeteries is one thing that we are always looking at. And is it clear? Something as simple as uh, restrooms. These aren't always in the middle of the city where it's a short drive. It may be outside of the city. And so uh, we need to have available restrooms uh, for our customers. Training for our customer service reps. So uh, Jory, the customer service rep is the individual within our cemeteries that on the, even before, but on the day of the services, greeting the family, walking them through the process all the way to the interment shelter or the committal shelter, and then to the final interment. And they're walking that family all the way through there. And then after the service, our customer service rep, cemetery representative is meeting with the family to ensure, and this is very important. What is inscribed on the grave mark? Because that family is going to visit that grave marker time and time again. And if there's something wrong on that, we need to make dang sure we get that right as well. So we've done that. The last one I would talk about is our call center operations. And I'm, that's still a work in progress. We have incredible agents that, that understand that this is a very sensitive time for the family, potentially for the funeral home. And so we're working with them on a veteran experience officer own the moment. Right, not only at our cemeteries, but also at our call center. Own that moment with the customer and ensure that we are doing everything we can to, to give them a positive experience as, as they come out of it. So that's really what we're seeing. Automation, uh, we may talk about that's something feedback to the family, feedback to the funeral home in terms of scheduling. We'll continue to work on. But those are kind of what we're hearing out there. There are obviously several different tools to measure satisfaction in NCA services, and one of those is its survey of satisfaction. So how is NCA incorporating that feedback and, again, using that feedback as a way to improve its level of experience to customers? I'll tell you, from our call center, and, and we have metrics that we watch very, very closely in terms of call times, in terms of customer satisfaction. We'll do follow-up calls if there was any challenges. Uh, we're at about 98% satisfied in terms of the call. 93% very satisfied. And so our numbers there are good, but I still think, um, let's take 2% that weren't satisfied. What is it that we aren't doing right on that call? Maybe it's information flow. Maybe it's just not having the answer that they wanted. You know, not every veteran is eligible. We got to walk through that and sure not all family members are eligible. And so we walk through that and that may lead to dissatisfaction. But I think the one thing that we see is the call times. And so what we've done in terms of call times, Jory, as we just here recently added uh, interactive voice. And so we were getting calls with just questions. So those calls could go to a frequently asked question and answer section. And so we've added that and that's reduced some of those calls that our customer service reps are taking a long time to answer as opposed to calls coming in that just wanted to schedule the internment and make sure that eligibility was there. Uh, the other one that we have done, Jory, is we've worked on, instead of time of need eligibility determination, we have really pushed pre-need eligibility. And as a veteran, I've done it myself. 
And so my family at time of need should not be having to wait. And we're hearing this from our customers. Shouldn't have to be looking through all of my files to find my DD-214. I've already done that for them. And so whether my final wishes are interment in a national or a grant-funded veteran cemetery, that's already done. And my eligibility has been determined. That will reduce the time that our call center reps are taken with the family members or the funeral homes increasing productivity, increasing the amount of time we can spend on those specific questions. And so that's as a result of that feedback from customers, those items, feedback from the customers as well, Joy. Okay. Well, to, I guess maybe expand on the part of the call center interaction, the frequently asked questions, it seems like it gets back to your earlier point about automation or you know streamlining the things that are able to be streamlined. Yeah, absolutely. And so whether it's an eligibility question or, hey, tell me what has to happen with with the interment, all of that can be done with the frequently asked questions. And and we're seeing good response for a number of calls that are going to that frequently asked question and not having to come back to a live operator. Again, previously, those operators who really should be scheduling or determining eligibility and allow the frequently asked questions to handle those calls. And so we're seeing really good response there and more time with our call center reps able to spend with that funeral home or, again, in the case of about a third of our calls uh, for, for the family member to schedule the interment and make sure that they fully understand here's what the VA is willing to do for you or the veteran service. Matthew Quinn, the VA's Undersecretary of Memorial Affairs, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tamman. 